I invite you to open your Bibles to Amos chapter 1. I'm Pastor Jay. It is a privilege to have you here today. We're currently in a series on what we call the Minor Prophets. It's probably a nickname given by St. Augustine in the 4th century. The Bible doesn't call them the Minor Prophets. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament written mostly in Hebrew, some in Aramaic, but in the Hebrew Bible, they're called the Twelve, and they're one book, although they're separated by name, but they're one book in the Hebrew Bible, the Twelve. In our Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible doesn't end with these. The Hebrew Bible ends in Chronicles. Chronicles, we call it first and second, but it's one book in the Hebrew Bible because it summarizes all of history, all of Hebrew history, Jewish history, all of history of the world. It goes all the way back to Adam. And so in the Hebrew Bible, these are not found right at the end, but they are in our English Bibles. And we've noted that one of the most encouraging things about the minor prophets is the way they are saturated with the character of God. Specifically, three things about God continually come to the surface in the minor prophets. Those are God's sovereignty. Secondly, God's holiness. And then thirdly, God's love. And these come out over and over again. This weekend, we come to the third book in the minor prophets. Hope you have your Bible open. I hope you have a text open in front of you. The book of Amos. This was a time when Amos preached to the top kingdom. Israel had a civil war. We talked about this. A couple hundred years before Amos lived, and Israel divided into two nations. There were ten tribes on top, two on the bottom. Top called Israel, bottom called Judah. Amos is called to the top ten. Israel. That's what they, they retained the name Israel. And it was a time of great prosperity to Israel, and a time of, of affluence and things going well. In other words, uh, business was booming, and religion was booming. The problem is the people were complacent. The people had gotten lazy, they were indulging themselves, and even worse, they were practicing injustice and oppressing the poor, and the list of sins goes on. And so while business and religion were booming, right below the surface, oppression and injustice were festering. Not an uncommon scenario, obviously. So the book of Amos is quite literally a scorching set of sermons. This is some of the most scorching preaching you'll see in the Bible. And God told Amos to deliver a message, not only to Israel, that top nation, but to the nations around Israel. He had them in his crosshairs too, for what they were doing, some horrendous things. And so the theme is a call to repentance. And if there's a key verse, it's Amos chapter 4, verse 13. I mean, verse 12, Amos 4, 12, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. And so with that, Amos divides. This is a survey, and we're doing one book a week. The goal is to introduce you to the minor prophets and pique your interest. And so we're looking at how is the book structured and kind of an overview of the book. So Amos divides pretty easily into four sections. And we're just going to walk through this one at a time. They are, if you have your outline in front of you, judgment on the nations. That takes up the first part of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And then judgment on God's people. And then visions of judgment. There's a series of symbolic visions about the coming day of the Lord. And then the last section ends with words of promise and hope. 
So first, let's dive in. Judgment on the nations. This starts in the first verse and goes through chapter 2, verse 3. You say, well, that's kind of a strange division. Just a reminder, chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles are not part of the original text. They came in over a thousand years later. And sometimes they're very helpful. They are often. Sometimes they get in the way a bit. But here the first section of Amos literally runs from the first verse to about chapter 2, what we call chapter 2, verse 3. So first of all, a couple questions. Number one, who's Amos? Well, Amos was not a prophet. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a politician. He wasn't a warrior or general. He was a shepherd. And he was a farmer. And he was from Tekoa. You say, well, where's Tekoa? Well, today, if you stand, there's, a, most of you heard of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great, they just found his sarcophagi a couple years ago, his sarcophagus uh, in, right outside of Bethlehem, in what is called the Herodium. Herodium is an artificial hill, looks like kind of a volcano outside of Bethlehem that he had built up for his burial 2,000 years ago. And when they found his sarcophagus there, um, it's a, uh, there's a palace there, and there's a whole bunch of things that were built into that artificial hill. I've stood up on that hill. We've stood up there. If you stand on a hill right outside of Bethlehem, you look this way, there's Bethlehem. You look over here, here's Tekoa. So it's a small village right near Bethlehem, five, six miles, and about 10 miles from Jerusalem. So it's just a small rural area. Notice he dates his prophecy. It's very interesting. We've talked about how the prophets regularly will often date their prophecy, wanting you to know they're not making this up. This really happened. This person really existed, and they really delivered their message, and here's the dates, and here was what going on in the world. In other words, this stuff really happened, not make-believe. It's not like the Bhagavad Gita or the Hindu scriptures or the Buddhist scriptures where it's a lot of mythology. The Bible regularly wants you to know these things took place. This is true. This is trustworthy. Here's the geographical coordinates. Here's what's going on archaeologically. These things, here's who was reigning in, 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 in the political world. They want you to know this really happened. And so he dates his book, verse 1. Words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel. Okay, when's he writing? Two years before the earthquake. Zechariah also makes reference to this earthquake. That gives us a pretty good idea. And then he gives us the two kings. One was ruling in the kingdom down. Remember, there's two kingdoms. So Uzziah was kingdom of Judah. And then Jeroboam, this would be Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, was king of the top nation, Israel. So that's when. So we know pretty accurately that he was writing about 760 to 750 BC. 760 to 750 BC. Gives us a pretty good idea, which means, if you know your Old Testament history, one of the big, big, mega big dates in Old Testament history is 722 BC. That's a big one. Why? That is when Assyria, God brought in Assyria. He said, they're the club of my wrath. He brought them in the most brutal empire on earth at that time in 722. And he took out the top 10 tribes and they have never existed since. That's a biggie. And Amos is writing about uh, 30 to 40 years before that happened. So that's where it is set in history. Next question is, what was his message? You say this is a, you know, kind of a scorched earth policy book. That's what it is. God told Amos, I am fed up with the nations around Israel. I am fed up with Israel. I'm fed up with my people and their endless sin and debauchery and rebellion. 
and I am coming. I told Becky this week as I studied this book, it feels like God pulled out a flamethrower and just kind of... It's an intense book, and yet it ends in hope. And there's a couple glimmers of mercy we'll see along the way. So his message is one of thundering judgment against his people and against the nations, but against his people in particular, a people who were oppressing the poor, twisting justice, mocking uh, justice in the courts, and only looking out for their own concerns. And so I think almost more than any other book of the Bible, Amos calls out the sin and evil of abusing other people and taking advantage of those less fortunate and of perverting justice and of injustice. It's quite a book. And there's a lot here for us and for God's people. This brings us to the opening of the book. I already read verse 1. Sets the date. Tells us. And then he says in verse 2, he said, so Amos is prophesying here, the Lord roars from Zion. A lot of you know when you see Lord in English, capital L, capital O-R-D, it's the divine name of God. If you see it in lowercase, it's one of his titles. That's how we make the distinction in English. So if you see uh, lowercase L-O-R-D, or it's, talking, it's either the Hebrew word Elohim or Adonai, or it's one of his titles. If you see it all in caps, that means Yahweh is being used. That's God's name. The others are titles. This is his name, and his name is used just over 6,000 times. So just over 6,000 times in the Hebrew Bible, you'll see it all in caps. So here, by name, Yahweh roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Quite a way to open a book. There's not any, you know, kind of easy segue into this book. It just, it just opens and the Lord roars from Zion. He's thundering from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. So it's a pretty intense opening. And then the judgment just comes firing out. So give you a feel for it. These, again, this opening section is not aimed at Israel. These are the nations right around Israel. So for example, verse three. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. So there, Damascus, Syria is in the crosshairs. And then, for example, verse 7, I'm going to send fire on the walls of Gaza and will consume her fortresses. Or verse 8, I will destroy the king of Ashdod. These were pagan kings, heathen nations. These are nations that worship multiple gods and practice very occultic, demonic, pornographic religious practices. They were very evil, and God says they're still going to be held accountable. Or if you drop down to verse 10, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre. It's up by modern-day Lebanon. It will consume her fortresses. Or verse 12, I will send fire on Taman. and will consume the fortresses of Basra. So you get the kind of the imagery of a flamethrower. It's just, it opens strong and God comes out shooting and it's very clear he is angry. Chapter two, just the first couple verses. This is what Yahweh says for three sins of Moab. Here's another one. Moab is right south of the Dead Sea. Even for four, I will not relent because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. And I will send fire on Moab and consume the fortresses of Kirith. So over and over again, Amos is calling out the sins of the nations. What are they? Injustice. Slavery is mentioned here. Condemned. Cruelty. 
genocide, brutality, injustice, dishonesty, deceit, corruption. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Here's the point. A lot of people think, well, you know, God has one standard for his people and another for the, you know, uh, uh, those who are not his people. It's very clear when you're reading this that Amos says, even these heathen nations who don't know God, don't know his standards, they will be judged by God's righteous standard. They don't get a free pass. Sobering to remember along that line, the words of Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 says, God is the same, same yesterday, today, and forever. Actually says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. But the reminder is God doesn't change. God is the same God. It means the sins of nations today, God is taking very serious. It means the sins of America, Western culture, but the sins of other countries and nations, the Lord does take seriously. If you focus the spotlight on our own country, it's a reminder that God takes our sin and our sins locally, regionally, nationally, very serious. Sins like racism are not a small thing to God. Sins like ignoring the poor, stealing, lying, violence in the streets. These are not small things to God. Or moral evils like abortion or corruption and deceit or the open celebration of homosexuality. These should cause us to take inventory because God doesn't change. His standards don't change. You listen to the cultural conversation, it sounds like morality is a never-ending shifting platform. It's not. There is one standard and there's always been one standard. And there's one faith delivered for once for all to the saints. And Jesus doesn't change. And the standard of justice remains the same. That's what bothers so many, especially in the younger generation. They don't like the idea of God as a judge, especially an angry judge. Ellen DeGeneres, several years ago, was asked, I watched an interview, do you believe in God? She said, oh yeah, I believe in God. But not a God of judgment. Or My God only loves, that's it. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is a loving, merciful God, but that's also tied up with his holiness and his justice and his righteousness. It's one package. And there's a lot of people in Western culture, especially, especially the younger generation, who just flat out reject Christianity because they don't like the fact that God presents himself as a God of judgment. Case in point, November a couple years ago, the British periodical, The Economist, one of the most influential journals, periodicals in the world, there was an article by a British reporter, her name was Catherine Nixie, N-I-X-E-Y, and the title of it was called Nearer My God to Me. Nearer My God to Me, and the subtitle was very intriguing. Subtitle of her article in The Economist was Why God is Becoming More Liberal. Interesting title. She's a clever writer. She wrote this. Speaking of churches, priests, clergy, kind of toning down the whole judgment thing in today's culture. Subtitle, Why God is Becoming More Liberal, she writes, quote, smiting, S-M-I-T-I-N-G, smiting used to be so simple. God smote and people trembled and they sometimes died. He smote the rebellious Israelites and tens of thousands died. He smote the Egyptians, especially the firstborn, they all died. 
He smote the Philistines, and they got hemorrhoids. And the Sodomites, they suffered a particularly striking smiting. And then she gets right to the point when she concludes that in her own nation of Great Britain, she said, few in Great Britain today are celebrating a smitey almighty. (laughs) Close quote. Problem is God doesn't change. The church father Marcion tried to argue that the God of the Old Testament was a mean, nasty, grouchy God who zapped people. And the God of the New Testament was a loving, merciful God, and they're two different gods. He was condemned by the church in Rome as a heretic. There's not two different gods. There's not two different aspects. God didn't function one way this way and one way this way. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is perfect love. He is perfect holiness, and he is perfect justice. He's not loving in spite of his wrath. He's loving because of his wrath. Nobody can be loving who turns a blind eye to justice. They have to be concerned with justice. That's how you love. It's all intertwined. That brings us to judgment on God's people. Now, this section, interestingly, is mentioned. This is almost five times as long as the judgment on the nations. The point is God's people will be held to a higher standard, but the nations will be held to God's standard. But God's people are even more accountable. So if you have access to truth, the principle is even more accountable. So from chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 6, it contains several sermons of warning. So this section is a collection of Amos' sermons. That's not uncommon in the minor prophets. You have a whole bunch of sermons here. And they are aimed at the people of Israel. They are sermons of judgment and sermons of warning. And his message is this. God's people have God's law and they have simply caved in to the sins of their culture and have looked like nothing but the cultures around them. That's his indictment. They don't look any different than the world around them. And that's certainly an indictment for the church, most of the generations, certainly an indictment on much of the church today. The church doesn't look any different. You go into chum churches and they're celebrating the same sins that the culture celebrates. There's no difference. And that is exactly what he's calling them on the carpet for here. He zeroes in on two in particular. So let us note these. First of all, he's reminding God's people that they are guilty of oppressing the poor and twisting justice. That's sin number one, kind of all under one label. Oppression of the poor, taking advantage of of the poor and twisting justice. For example, look at four verses one to two. This will give us a feel for this part. Again, these are sermons. These are portions of sermons that Amos preached. And he nails the people on the way they have oppressed the poor. Four, one. And the language here is pretty tart. And then you'll find it gets very sarcastic. God can be very sarcastic at times. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. So again, God reserves some of his strongest language in the Bible for those who take advantage of the poor, ignore the poor, cheat the poor. 
cheat those lesser. Amos next takes issue, calls Israel to lament and repent. You know the difference between lament and repent. Lament is to grieve over. Repent is to change your behavior. And so first to lament, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, after a very clear rebuke for oppressing the poor and twisting justice. They get this call to lament. Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Hear this, Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land, with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord, this is what Yahweh says to Israel. And he goes on with this very strong lament. It's very clear. If you get over to verses 12 to 15, chapter 5. For I know many of your offenses. I know how many are your offenses. Verse 12. And how great are your sins. Now comes first the call to lament. Now the call to repent. Change your behavior. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes. And deprive the court, uh, deprive the poor of their justice in courts. Therefore the prudent keep quiet in such times. For the times are evil. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Then Yahweh God Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts, and perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. There again is a mention of mercy and God's willingness. Why don't you look at verse 17 for just a second. Notice 17. There's a chilling promise here that you may not recognize at first. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. There seems to be a very clear allusion, if you know your Bible here, back to Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus 12, let me just tell you what happened. So when the Lord passed through Egypt in judgment, he's, the angel of death passed through Egypt, killed the firstborn of every family, even animals, in judgment. The language is God passed through Egypt. But when he came to the homes of the Hebrews, his people, and if they had put lamb's blood over their door frame, the angel of death did what? He passed over that home in judgment. A very clear allusion to the coming Messiah whose blood would protect the people of God from judgment and God would pass over them in judgment. And hence Passover, that's where it came from. But those that received judgment, the angel of death passed through the camp, passed through Egypt. God moved through their midst. Well, here, there is no Passover in verse 17. This time, this applies to Israel, and there will be wailing in the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst. The language this time is not passing over, it's passing through. It is the language of judgment. And the message is clear. They will be smitten. And they will know they were smoted. Judgment is coming and God is going to smite them unless they repent. So the offer is there. And we know they did not repent. It's amazing how often people in sin, entrenched in sin, can hear the warnings and still sit and their heart gets even harder. The second sin they're called out for is empty, heartless worship. And this comes out, for example, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. So first sin that God's people are called on the carpet for is oppression, twisting justice, 
taking advantage of the poor. God says that's a very serious evil. But then there's a whole other level, and that is he called them on the carpet for their worship, what we are gathering here to do right now. And the message is, God says a lot of you have come, and you're just going through the motions. You're not really serious. You're saying liturgy, you're singing songs, you're listening to sermons and taking notes, and you're not engaged. Your heart's not engaged. And he calls them on the carpet. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And this becomes pretty pointed and even personal for myself, for any of us here today. Four, four, and five. Now here's, I told you God gets very sarcastic sometimes. He's pretty sarcastic here. Go to Bethel and sin. He's not telling them to go sin. He's just affirming this is what you want to do. Fine, go do it and see what happens. See how that works for you. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Bring leavened bread as a thank offering. Go ahead and brag about your free will offerings and boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. If you put it in today's terms, go ahead. Go to church. Sit. Sing in the choir. Open your Bibles. Listen to sermons. Go to Sunday school. Participate. Get baptized. Take communion. It means nothing. If your heart isn't in it, if you're not if you're not born again, or even if you are truly saved, but you've drifted and you're in sin and you're not engaged anymore. And God says it's, it's a mockery. In fact, he uses very strong language. You go to chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. Chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, he uses the language of hatred. I hate. I despise your religious festivals. We could insert the word today, your religious services. Your assemblies are a stench to me. That's a pretty, I mean, as I was sitting working this week, I, praying that what we do honors the Lord because here is a reminder. Just because people get together and call it a church and make some show of a worship service doesn't mean it's pleasing to God. There are many churches around that are very good and there are churches around that are not good. And some of what we see in our own communities around us that are celebrating the same evils of our culture are a stench to God. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I'm not going to accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for Away with the noise of your songs. Shut down the choir. Shut down the instruments. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. So on the surface, young people, hear this, especially not because you need it more than the rest of us, but because you, greater hope perhaps for you, you have a longer life to live yet. Hear this, but all of us hear this. It looked like religious revival was occurring. It looked like there was spiritual vitality going on. Just by watching and seeing the people go to temple, go to services, get excited, worship, sing, praise, listen to preaching. It looked like, wow, this place is alive. God's people are alive. Crowds are gathering, worship's occurring, praying, singing, preaching. And God says, uh, there's a problem. The worship is empty. 
Your hearts are not engaged. This is half-hearted. And you're just playing games with me. You read the same kind of stuff in the book of Malachi when we get to that. As I was working on this this week, I couldn't help but ask for myself, okay, where, where, where am I in danger of this kind of thing? Where are our people in danger of this kind of thing? Where is the church in America in danger of this kind of thing? And I think there are lots of different answers. I think the same kinds of sins, half-hearted worship, where it looks like everything's going well, but underneath, we're, we're, we're playing games. For example, when we don't bring the tithe in to the Lord. And yet we come and sing, I surrender all and I'm all in. And yet we hold back, as Malachi would say, we rob God by not giving him the 10% that he says belongs to him. Very clear in Malachi. That's a sin. There will be discipline for it. And God says, you're robbing me. Or when I come to a worship service and we come and we seek forgiveness from God and we have times of confession, all the while we're holding grudges against other people. It's amazing how many of God's people can sit and seethe in bitterness and anger towards people for years. Or when we have hit and miss attendance at church because we're too busy. That is half-hearted commitment. That's half-hearted worship. That's playing games with God. Things crowd out pretty soon. The Sabbath gets dishonored. Pretty soon the Lord's day is not what it was intended to be anymore because we've got things to do. We've got agendas. We've got travel sports. We've got this. We've got that. And pretty soon it's not a mystery to our kids what takes priority in our lives. And it's not the local church anymore. And then we wonder why do our kids, when they get out of high school or college, drift away from the faith? Or when we ignore God's command to be holy and we start having sex with our girlfriend or boyfriend or we get involved in pornography and yet we come and pretend like everything's fine with God. Or we sit in a worship service and we pull out our phone, looks like we're going to pull out our Bible and then we spend the time texting and scrolling social media and we're not even engaged. There's a lot of ways that I can be guilty of this. A lot of ways you can be guilty. We can be guilty. God's people can be guilty of half-hearted worship, playing games with God, not being all in, and just going through the motions. And this has tremendous application and relevance. And once again, if you go back to chapter 4 for just a second, the words of, of God are, are chilling. This is perhaps one of the most chilling because in a day when people are trying to tone down the talk of judgment in the Bible, you see even writers today trying to tone it down and say, well, God didn't really mean it like that. And he, God will have none of it. He's like, yes, I do. I mean, here you, you couldn't find, I remember listening to a well-known atheist and he grounded his atheism in several things, but the one passage of scripture, guess where he went? Amos chapter four. And he got cranked up as he said, look at Amos chapter four. Who's taking the blame? Who's doing this stuff? It's God, he said. And God never tries to get himself off the hook. Amos chapter four, verse nine and 10. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards. Verse 10, I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword along with those, your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned. I mean, the staggering thing is he keeps that refrain going, but you didn't return. So I cranked up 
again, it's amazing how many of us continue in sin. God brings the discipline and we still, we just hunker down more. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look at verses 12 and 13, chapter 4. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. So in a day when I'm, I, I mean, I'm finding writers today who profess to be Christian or evangelical, and they're trying to tone down the talk of hell, the talk of judgment. Oh, you know, God didn't really mean that. Greg Boyd, well-known writer today, arguing that, that Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they talk of judgment, that was their misunderstanding of who God was. And that they're actually, they were wrong. And yet he's publishing as a prominent professed evangelical today, Greg Boyd. And God says, I'll have none of that. kind." Of, God does not want to take himself off the hook. I struck your gardens. I sent plagues. I killed your young man. God is a merciful, loving God, but he also is a God of justice. Thirdly, the visions of judgment. I won't read these per se, but the, there's, there's five visions of judgment between chapter 7, 1, all the way through chapter 9, verse 10. And there's five symbolic visions of judgment. They are, if you're just taking notes or noting them, locusts, that's in 713, fire, verses 4 to 6, chapter 7, a plumb line, chapter 7 to 8, a basket of fruit that's overripe and going to rot pretty soon. That's a picture. These are kind of visuals of the coming day of the Lord. And a vision of the Lord judging. Now, here's what's interesting. I told you there's glimmers of mercy in the book. The first two, after Amos pleads, God says, I, I, okay, I'll relent on that one. I'll relent. You see that again. Even back like in Sodom and Gomorrah where God, you know, if you can find 50 righteous people, okay, I, I won't. Okay. How about 40? Okay, for 40 I won't. How about for 30? Okay, for 30 I won't. You see these glimmers of God's heart in his mercy. And yet people frequently just keep on going. The basket of fruit, another very vivid one. You got fruit that's almost overly ripe and going to rot. And so part of this fourth vision of judgment is God will not allow his people, eight, verse eight, or chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Look at chapter 8, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 8, 11 and 12. One of the judgments is he's going to actually not allow his people to hear the word of God. That's pretty haunting. The days are coming, verse 11, declares sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land... Not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. That could even be God's judgment that he does not allow an area anymore to have the word of God. Or if they have it, to confuse the people so they can't understand it and welcome it. A reminder, ladies and gentlemen, young people, it is a privilege to have access to God's word. And we will be held more accountable because of it. And it's a privilege to have it and to understand it. And even more than that, it is a privilege if God opens our heart to respond to it. He doesn't do that to everybody. He does that for his elect. And if you love the word of God, then thank him for that gift in your life that you welcome it and treasure it and can obey it. The last section we come to, the promise section, words of hope and promise. And this is chapter 9, verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Wonderful. In spite of all the scorched earth language and the flamethrower effects, Amos ends 
friends, on a very powerful note of hope and promise. That's key here. It's so like the Lord. Verses 11 to 15. In that day, that day, that's always referring to the final time, final days, I will restore David's fallen shelter or fallen tent. I will refer, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. So some translations translate that booth, some shelter. It's the Davidic line that ends in Jesus. That's the point. This is, verse 11 is a beeline, a straight on beeline to Messiah Jesus. Because he comes in the line of David. So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. Verse 13, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. That's promise. The planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains. We saw that last week in Joel. God's big into wine dripping from the mountains. Flow from the hills. It's a sign of his blessing and prosperity. I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Look at verse 15. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord God. That has not yet been fulfilled. So we are in the future, and these are promises coming, and they are fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. And according to verse 14, Amos sees a day when Israel will be restored not only to its land, but will become a blessing to the nations. And that's talked about in the New Testament. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, you know your New Testament. In Acts 15, there's this thing called the Jerusalem Council, where a group of leaders met and they tried to figure out what God is leading to next. And James the Apostle gets up and guess what he quotes? Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 at the famous Jerusalem Council. And his purpose in quoting from Amos is to show that God's plan of salvation was designed to include all ethne, all nations, not just the Jews. And so this becomes a great missiological text in the New Testament in the mouth of James. All right, as we go to communion this morning, three warnings from the book of Amos. Number one, how could we ignore the warning of oppression and justice? There's a very serious warning here about anyone who would practice oppression. And he's very clear, our daily choices have consequences. A warning of oppression and injustice. God says, I take that very, very seriously. If you're here today and you're involved in cheating, scamming, <laughs> lying, taking advantage of those who are less fortunate, God says, I will hold you accountable. And it is a very serious sin. Second warning is about playing games with God in worship. In an audience this size, some of us here today are playing games. You know it. God says, I don't take that lightly. It, Encouraging thing is, you're alive and breathing, you can repent. And there's a warm invitation to return to the Lord. And the last warning is about a final day of judgment. Amos is very clear. There is a final day of the Lord coming, that day. And he's, his question is, are you, are you prepared to meet God? Young people, are you ready to meet God? Kids, adults, that's what Amos is crying out, prepare to meet God. And the Bible is very clear. Only those who take refuge in Messiah Jesus 
will have God's judgment pass over them because of the blood of the Lamb. That's where Exodus lines right up with the New Testament. And so I close with this great gospel verse, Romans 10, 9. If you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. Guess what it says? You will be saved. That's how to know God.